0: Good morning, FPC family. This week, we continue our study of the Gospel of Mark and discover the delight of faith that delivers. You will be inspired by the surprising places, people, and perspective faith comes from. You will be transformed in seeing the faithfulness of Jesus to deliver all who have faith in him. Please join me in reading Mark 7, through 24 through 30. And from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field.
1: The grass withers, and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Amen. Thank you so much, Sarita. I add my greetings to those that you have already heard this morning. Good morning, church. Uh, If you have your Bibles, please keep them open, Mark chapter 7. If you uh, don't have your Bibles, we should have some back in the pews for you. Uh, Or you can use your phones. No judgment here. Let's just get in the Word together. Uh, It is a super uh, beautiful moment that we can worship the Lord together under the authority of His Word. I'm always honored that I'm allowed to come 50 yards down the hall from Westminster Hall uh, to worship with you all and open the Word together with you. We are one family at First Presbyterian Church, and it is a joy and an honor and privilege to worship the Lord and studying His Word together. There's a lot of great things happening within our church family, but we gather together, many of us, with very heavy hearts. Uh, Most of us are, are longing to have real strength to endure difficult days, to look for help in hard times, looking for hope with very heavy hearts. It's remarkable thinking that it has been two decades since 9-11 happened, and all of the memorials and remembrances that took place last week and yesterday, the images that we saw that were refreshed uh, just evoked within us some of the rawest fears that we have as people. We carry that with us as a country, and in other ways, anxiety and depression are are at an all-time high in our country. Culture wars are at a fever pitch, the the, the division between politics, the level of intensity uh, that has come in our public discourse is just, frankly, disheartening. We even experience this on a personal level. Not just a social level. The flowers you'll see up here, the beautiful flowers, remind us it's been a year anniversary since we lost uh, our beloved pastor, uh, Reverend Louis Zabinden. But many of us have individual loss outside of that. Family and friends that are sick or have passed due to COVID. Uh, Individual stresses and struggles that come from schools and overstressed hospitals. And we can identify with the the, uh, the hope that is longed for in this narrative, desperate for deliverance. Where do we find strength to endure? Now, the context of our passage is important to remember. The last two weeks, uh, we have been studying the dialogue or the debate or the discussion or, I don't know, the fight between Jesus and the Pharisees over what defiles a person. Now, the Pharisees, oftentimes, we just kind of put them in camp crazy, don't we? And we're like, okay, you crazy people, get on a raft and go on downstream, and we can't find a way to identify with the Pharisees. But I want to pull back on that and tell you that we have more in common with them than we want to admit. Pharisees were a people that kept the law, and they created laws around the law because they wanted Israel to be pure. And they wanted Israel to be pure because they believed in their own performance and their striving for purity that they could experience deliverance. It was in fact because Israel was impure in the promised land they had mingled with Canaanite cultic worship and they had become defiled and unrepentant that they experienced exile. The deliverance for Israel as they were in an occupied land under Roman rule, the belief was that Pharisees could lead in a way that kept the people pure so that God would deliver them. Now, you and I do the same thing. Oftentimes, we seek to perform so that in some way we obligate God to be nice to us, to be good to us. Sometimes that's a distant thing, but let me put it another way. Has something bad ever happened in your life and you raise your fist at God and say, how could you do this to me? I've been so good. The diagnosis, Phariseeism. A moralism that is designed to obligate God to give you rescue and favor. I can identify, you can identify, we all can identify. But what we see in the story of the Pharisees is that their focus on personal purity and piety caused them to miss the person of Jesus Christ, the one who could deliver them. Was completely disregarded because of their own focus on themselves and their own self righteousness in church. That's what happens to us. When we find our own identity and our own performance and our own status and our own cultural uh, trappings, then we miss the person who God has sent to deliver us, Jesus Christ. And so today's passage in that context of the dialogue discussion or fight with the Pharisees is looking in to answer the main question. What is that can really deliver us? The answer, a faith. A faith in Jesus. And the highlight of this passage is the faith of the foreign woman. And we're going to see three things in this passage. First, we're going to see that faith for deliverance comes from a surprising place. Look at verse 24. It starts with, and from there, Jesus had been in Capernaum. And you'll remember the Pharisees, go back to 7.1, the Pharisees had come down from Jerusalem on a fact-finding mission. They wanted evidence that Jesus was being defiled, his disciples were defiled, so that they could build a case against him and get rid of him. He had too big of a following. And so Jesus went from that place of debate and discussion that uh, was with the Pharisees that had come from Jerusalem, and he went to a place called Tyre. This is Gentile territory on the northwest part of Israel, right above it, kind of like a little uh, sombrero for for the uh, geographic nature uh, place of Israel. And he went up there uh, to get away. You can see it really clearly, he entered into a house he did not want anyone to know. He was trying to hide. Too many people, too much busyness. And he went to this Gentile place of Tyre. Now Tyre, historically, if you go back to 1 Kings chapter 5, you're going to remember that the king of Tyre actually had an economic relationship with Israel and gave King Solomon supplies for the temple. But if you continue to read the New Testament, you see that they ended up becoming an international threat, an enemy to Israel, and an economic competitor. So much so, you can see it in Ezekiel chapter 26, and I know what you're saying. Oh great, Ezekiel 26, Mitchell. I had my quiet time in that this morning. Blah, blah, blah. Well, just to refresh your memory, Ezekiel 26... We see that in the downfall of Jerusalem, the people of Tyre rejoiced. They saw it as economic opportunity when the people of God fell. You see, the, the people from Tyre were, uh, made their money off of sea trade. They made a lot of money, good economy. And then they would use that money and they would increase their land at the expense of the Israelites. They would buy up and take the promised land. So when Jerusalem fell and Israel was taken into captivity, that was opportunity for Tyre. That's why in Ezekiel and many other prophets of the Old Testament, Tyre is an object of judgment and wrath. And if you read the descriptions of how God relates with Tyre, it's a complete place of devastation after God's done with them. And that's the place Jesus went. He went to Tyre, the enemies of God. It's remarkable. Maybe he wanted rest that he never got. You remember chapter 6, verse 30, uh, after feeding the 5,000? He he and his disciples were trying to get away. Maybe that's where they went. No one will bother us here. But what we see is that faith that delivers, it comes from unlikely places. But the second thing that we see is that faith for deliverance comes from a surprising people, a Canaanite woman. This same episode is recorded in Matthew. uh, Same story, uh, different lens of perspective. But we see that a woman came immediately, verse 25, a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit of, of him and came and fell down. At Jesus' feet, verse 26, how was she described? She was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth. You see, this woman came to Jesus alone. This Gentile woman came to Jesus alone. The Greek Syrophoenician woman came to Jesus alone. This unclean woman with a child that had an unclean spirit came to Jesus alone. Now, first of all, rabbis were not allowed to hang out with women. That was considered unclean. Greek women knew that it was also considered unclean uh, for Jews to go and talk to a man. This is like a double line of demarcation of defilement. If you can get to a place that's like the opposite of what we've been studying the past two weeks, that's where we are in this undesignated house where an unclean Gentile woman is at the feet of rabbi, King Jesus. Now, we need to say this. Jesus always dignifies women, always. Now, this narrative has some difficult things to digest, but it does not come at the expense of him dignifying this woman in conversation. Jesus dignifies women in John 4, the woman at the well. He dignifies a woman that was caught in adultery. He and all his followers in the New Testament church gave a dignity to the women of that day and age that was revolutionary for the time. And Christians still stand for and advocate for the dignity of women. But this woman came alone. How significant was the defilement? You could go to John chapter 18, verse 28. And it's clear that any Greek that is in the presence of a Jew, that Jew is unclean and unfit to go into the temple for worship, can't be in the presence of God. This is a defiling scenario that's made worse with Matthew's description. Because Matthew, if you go back to Matthew 15, he describes her as a Canaanite woman. Now, uh, a Canaanite, it it, it puts us in this pagan ancestry uh, with a pagan background. And if you remember the Old Testament, that when God sent Israel into the promised land, it was a land flowing with milk and honey, but it was full of Canaanites. They were child sacrificers. They were idolaters who worshiped Baal and Israel was sent as an arm of judgment for God, but many Canaanites were left in the land. That actually contributed to the defilement of Israel because they synchronized their religion. They worshiped God in the ways and practices of their culture, and that led to exile. The Canaanites were enemies of God's people and targets of Pharisaical hatred, because they wanted to have purity, and Canaanites of all people represented this syncretistic, mingled reality that led to defilement. That's where Jesus finds himself. I don't know why she was alone. Maybe her husband was weak and disengaged. Maybe she was a widow and forgotten by society. Maybe she was a prostitute or a woman of ill repute that had a child regardless this woman was defiled and she was totally desperate. Desperate because her daughter had a demon that was unclean and she had heard about the authority of King Jesus. She had heard about the advancement of his kingdom and she believed that Jesus could heal her daughter. This is faith that delivers. She was so passionate that Matthew tells us that the disciples had to get her to be quiet. Stop yelling. Stop making a commotion. Stop making a scene. And she kept pleading, Jesus, heal my daughter. And she can't help but take you back to another Canaanite woman, a woman named Rahab. Do you remember Rahab? When God sent Israel into the promised land, to bring judgment, the first target was a city called Jericho. And God sent spies to Jericho. And in Jericho, they met a woman of peace. Her name was Rahab. She was a prostitute. And she had heard, Joshua too about the authority of the king, the Lord. And how the authority of the Lord had overthrown the Egyptians. And how the authority of the Lord had parted the Red Sea. And how the authority of the Lord was giving them the land of Canaan. She had heard and she believed and she asked to be delivered. And she was. Maybe this Canaanite woman, this Syrophoenician Greek, this defiled solo woman that had a daughter with an unclean spirit, maybe she had heard that too. And that's why she believes but what we do know is that faith comes from unlikely places, surprising places. And faith that delivers comes from surprising people. But it also, the third point, the final point, is that faith that delivers comes from surprising perspectives. Now let's get into some of the difficulty of this passage. Because this woman who was a Gentile, she begged Jesus, verse 26, to cast the demon out of her daughter. This is how Jesus responds. It's actually really uncharacteristic of King Jesus. And he said to her, let the children be fed first, for it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. And if you read Matthew's account, you see that her loud begging and insistent pleading is actually met with Jesus's silence. Now, Let's back up a little bit, and I want to introduce you to a derogatory term that Pharisees used for women like this woman. They called them dogs. The Greek word for the Pharisee use would be uh, kunaris, kunarios. Kunari, easy for him to say. Yeah, I can't. The Greek word has a masculine solid ending, in its kunarios. And. The Pharisees used this as a real term uh, of just slander. And it referred to a dog that, if you've ever been to a developing part of our city or had a pesky dog in your neighborhood, or a developing part of the world, you know those dogs that are just scavengers that go and they knock down people's trash cans and they get food out. And, and by the time the night is done, you wake up in the morning and there's just trash everywhere. That is a cunarios. That is a wild dog. And the Pharisees called other people that who weren't as pure as them and righteous because they found their identity in their performance. And any time a people finds their identity in their own moral performance or a righteousness that comes from something in their self-effort, their tendency is to look down on other people. If your identity is in your politics, if you have a politics righteousness, you look down on people who don't have as enlightened view as you. If your identity is in your social status or your ethnic status, then you look down on people who aren't your social status or there aren't your ethnicity. If your identity is in your work, how much you make, the zip code you live in, then you look down on people who don't make as much, who don't live in your zip code, or at least you think you're better than other people. Maybe you don't look down on them, but you just feel a little bit better. Than everybody else. That's how the Pharisees were, because they felt that they were pure. Laws around laws, keeping it so that God would deliver his people. And so people who were unclean and impure, they looked down on them and they called them dogs. Now, this is where we really need to, to, to understand the heart of Jesus, because the focus of this passage is the faith of the woman. And as Jesus sits there, silently while she pleads and then uses a pharisaical term for her, he's actually creating a scenario where the faith, the desperation of this mama bear woman is highlighted. She has to have her daughter delivered. She has to have the king bring cleanliness. And so we see that the gospel, on the one hand, the announcement of the king, it offends people and afflicts people who are comfortable. If you're comfortable in your identity, your own self-righteousness, uh, then you are going to be offended like the Pharisees were. What do you do when you're offended? You seek to remove the voice of the gospel. And that's what the Pharisees did. They eliminated King Jesus. They killed him because they were threatened. But if you are in a place of need and desperation, then that promise, the power and authority is actually comfort. It's actually hope. And you're, not, you're not offended. You're not offended. You're encouraged, and that's what we see in this woman. Here's just a general principle that you can take with you. The gospel of Jesus Christ, it comforts the afflicted, and it afflicts the comfortable. I actually first heard that from Dr. Zeminden uh, when I was a youth pastor here about 17 years ago. The gospel, the announcement of Jesus being king, it comforts the afflicted, and it afflicts the comfortable. Now, where do we see this woman finding comfort? It, we find it in an interesting note. You remember me telling you that the Pharisee term for dog that they used to discriminate and disparage people like this woman, it was kunarios. Jesus doesn't use that form of dog. Jesus actually uses a term that is for a house dog. It's kunaria. It's like a term for doggy. And if you have a little dog at your house, my guess is that Jesus is using this term on the one hand to prick the Pharisee inside of everybody. People who would say, well, I cannot believe that he would talk to her, a dog. And he's using that to prick the pharisaical nature of people. But at the same time, I really, my gut just tells me, and I have no reason for this outside of just knowing Jesus, is that he's actually using a, a, some image from the house? There's a little doggy there. And he's being very faithful to his mission. He's called to be a light to Israel. But Isaiah 49:6 says the same thing: it's too small of a thing for that light just to remain among the people. So he's called to be a light to all nations. And so he's, he is highlighting the hunger of this woman's heart by using an image that comes from the house that they're in, sanctified imagination, a doggy. Now, I'm going to do something that I, I promise I'd never do in a sermon. Can I be vulnerable with you for just a minute? I, 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 don't, I don't think I got the consent there. Can I be vulnerable with you for a minute? Yeah, thank you very much for your permission. I'm going to tell you about my least favorite dog that I have, Bert. Now, I've got four kids. All my kids are my favorite. I got two dogs. One of them is my favorite, you know. So, Bert, he's a great dog. And you might say, well, that's an odd name for a dog, Bert. Where'd he get that name? He's named after me. Irony, right? My name's Albert Mitchell Moore. The dog's named Bert. Long story. If you ever come over, we'll tell it to you. But Bert is this quintessential little doggy that he is like always on the prowl for food and crumbs. He all, it's like the, He's a little tiny dog, but it's like he, he's a vacuum. He can never eat enough. And if you come over to my house, and if you come as a family, Bert is gonna size you up. He's gonna find the weakest person in your group, or the one who's the most emotionally vulnerable, that he knows that he can like, use his cuteness to give him food. He is a doggy who understands how to get scraps and crumbs. And he will sit under people, and he'll, he'll use all the power of his cuteness He can even like stand on his hind legs like a circus dog. He's trained himself to do that, by the way, so that he tries to win crumbs or leftovers. And he's so good at it that sometimes after we finish our meals, we go into the room to do the dishes and we look over and Bert has found his way on the table and he's eating crumbs off the table. And we're like, part of us are like admiring it. Like, wow. But most of us is like, get off my table, dog. Right, and then we send a kid to clean it up. All of our kids are our favorites, but not all of our dogs. Bert is a doggie. I said I'd never use an example of Bert from the pulpit, but I just did it. Thank you for letting me be vulnerable. You see, this woman is called a canaria by Jesus, a doggie, and she's not offended. She actually takes comfort and says, Yeah, Jesus. You're right, even the dogs eat the crumbs that the kids drop from the table. I believe that you're king. You see how Jesus is highlighting her faith? I believe that you're king. You see how Jesus is is evoking a faith that delivers from a desperate woman? I believe that even the crumbs from your table can give me more deliverance than anything else in this world. Now maybe she had heard like Rahab, of the deliverance of God, the authority of God, or the feeding of the 5,000. You remember that, where Jesus just took a few loaves and and some fish, and and he ended up filling up 12 baskets and feeding 5,000 men and all the women and children, and he had 12 baskets left over. Maybe she had heard about that. She was like, I know you're a king who does immeasurably more than we can ask or imagine, and I know leftovers can fill my longings more than anything else. Just give me the crumbs. But Jesus is highlighting this urgent hunger and faith for deliverance, knowing that she just needs a crumb for healing. And Jesus is amazed. I mean, amazed. And he says in Matthew and highlights here, what great faith. And I believe that the faith of this woman is to leave a generational mark, just like Rahab. If you remember Rahab, when Israel came into Jericho, All the walls fell. The place was devastated in rebellion against God, except for Rahab and her family. Because of their faith, Rahab and her family was delivered. And Rahab, this defiled, sinful prostitute, ended up marrying an Israelite whose name was Salmon. Salmon married Rahab, and they had a boy. His name was Boaz. And Boaz, he was an Israelite that lived in Bethlehem. And he fell in love with another foreigner and another desperate woman whose name was Ruth. God is in the business of providing dignity and refuge for women. And Ruth and Boaz get together, bounce at you, wow, wow. And they have a baby named Obed. And Obed has Jesse. And Jesse has King David. And through Rahab, and her marriage, her faith that delivers her marriage to Salmon, we celebrate the genealogy of King Jesus. Because faith delivers and generations of faith follows. And I believe that this Syrophoenician, Canaanite, defiled woman who had an urgent faith wants to have a generation, generational heritage of faithfulness in the church, of Christians who really believe. And so here are a few takeaways for you and for all of us. First, the mission of God to all nations is real. Mark is widely considered a gospel to the Gentiles, non-Jews. The disciples never get who Jesus is in the gospel. The Pharisees and scribes never get who Jesus is, but you know who does? A Roman centurion in chapter 15 and people like this Syrophoenician woman. Jesus is the vehicle of God's serious mission to reach the nations. That's the business of our king. Creation starts with two, and it ends in a multitude of people from every tribe, tongue, and nation who are around the throne of King Jesus, the Lamb who was slain, singing, Salvation belongs to our God. Secondly, God's mission to the nations is is real, but so is his mission to our neighborhoods. Faith comes from unlikely places and unlikely people with unlikely perspectives. That means that no one is too far gone. God wants to redeem even Pharisees. Look at Nicodemus. Nicodemus ended up being a a disciple, came to Jesus by night in John 3. By the end of the Gospel of John, he was in the middle of the daytime providing for Jesus' burial. He came out of the closet as a believer, Pharisee. Jesus wants to love even his enemies and offer salvation. Look at the Apostle Paul, also a Pharisee, but persecuted of the church. He became a preacher. Nobody's too far gone whether you're a woman of ill repute or a man who's self-righteous looking down on everybody that needs to be humbled by the grace of God, salvation is for all who believe. Come to the Lord desperate. He's, no one's too far gone, and God is working from places that you'd never expect. God is working from places you would never expect. All the difficulties of our lives all the frustrations and fears we have, those are just places of God making his name great when we choose to believe. You know, the gospel itself comes through a situation of a woman, a teenage girl, in a backwater community. (laughs) I mean, Jesus was born in Bethlehem, raised in Nazareth, and he, I mean, those are backwater parts of Israel, It was an occupied land in the most powerful empire in the world of the day, Rome. Nobody knew or cared where it was, except God who brought life there. And he did it through a teenage girl. And she had plans, plans to get married. Mary was going to marry Joseph and their families were going to live happily ever after. But God gave her an unwanted pregnancy. God surprised her with a divine embryo. God works in crazy places and in a culture that's fighting against life that says that every person has autonomy over everything because we ourselves are God, God gives a counter argument. Every heartbeat matters. Every surprise to us is a place of divine, sovereign grace. God is working in places we would never expect. You know, our church... We have a women's clinic that seeks to to give holistic health to women. We have an ultrasound machine. Just this week, we had somebody come to Christ in there, came in for an STD test. That's a sexually transmitted disease. Most folks in that situation are forgotten. We get to provide refuge, and God works in those places. Friends, God works in surprising places, and he's worthy of our faith. This woman... She comes and she's content with the king's crumbs left over from our divine lover, Jesus Christ, is enough. And we get to have the hunger of a doggie. And here's the truth, the fourth thing in this section. We're all doggies. All of us are more like Bert than we want to admit. We are hungering. The difference is, some little doggies look for scraps and scavengers and other doggies know that they're feasting at the table of the king we are all doggies who need a master that can bless us we are all defiled people who need cleansing that only jesus can give us we're all sinners who need a savior who only jesus is we are all destitute and we need we need a deliverer if you come in here and you don't think you're a deliver a deliverer if you don't think that you need to be forgiven If you don't think you need cleansing, then you're gonna be offended by this gospel message. Jesus is an equal opportunity offender. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. No one is righteous, no not one. Your best work, your best moral activity, Paul calls it a pile of dung, congratulations. Isaiah would call it a filthy rag, your best work. You can't clean yourself off, we need the grace of God. Jesus is an equal opportunity offender for all who find their identity outside the person and work of Jesus, but he wants to comfort everyone who comes to him in desperation. Jesus is the only place that is worthy of our faith. Only Jesus is king. Only Jesus is unchanging in a changing world. Only Jesus can look at death and bring life. Only Jesus looks at darkness and brings light. Only Jesus in a world that's divided and hated offers himself as love. He gives himself. Only Jesus can take your fears and, when you give him faith, can help you to flourish and give you fruitfulness. Only Jesus can satisfy you with his crumbs, his leftovers. And you'll realize it when you become exhausted and tired and discontent at trying to feast at the table of this world and never being satisfied. Jesus, in his love, still stands at the door and knocks and waits to come in and sup with you. Only Jesus is a place who's worthy of our faith. And finally, Jesus alone wins. And Christians, in a world of desperation, live from a place of victory. You see, Pharisees and people that find their identity outside of themselves, they feel like they've got to live for victory. If I'm good enough, I'll be delivered. If I'm righteous enough, I'll be made right. If I struggle hard enough and serve hard enough, then I'm going to be loved. But King Jesus says you live from a place from victory because you are a secure child of God, intimate in relationship with the Father, you are secure. Nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Because you've been served and you've been served by the king, King Jesus, you cannot be taken from the grip of the Father. That's what Jesus says in John 6. No one given to the Father can be taken away, from the Father can be taken away. If you have received the Holy Spirit, the helper, the spirit of truth, then nothing can take you from the family of God. You've been sealed. Victory has been accomplished. You need only to live in light of that victory. And friends, that gives hope. That gives peace. That gives gentleness. You don't have to be in control all the time and get angry at people who threaten your control. You can have freedom and self-control, trusting that there is a sovereign grace that's larger than you. A God who takes your weaknesses and says, my grace is sufficient. My power's made perfect here. The God who takes places of death and says, I am the resurrection and the life. All who believe in me, even though you die, You will not die. You'll live forever. Jesus is the one that says, do not be troubled by this world. In this world you'll have troubles, but I've overcome this world. You can have my peace. That is victory accomplished that needs to be applied. And if you have this faith for deliverance and you can hold to these words that are in Colossians 1, 12 to 14, for you have been delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred in the kingdom of God's beloved son, the kingdom of God's beloved son, through whom you have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. Church, that's faith. It comes from unlikely places, surprising people, and from a very surprising perspective. But the salvation, the deliverance of the king is for all who believe. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your great faithfulness, humbled by your mercy, and beg you for deliverance. We believe, Lord, would you help us with our unbelief. So often we nibble at the table scraps of this world and we miss just the full supper that you offer at the banquet of the kingdom of God. Help us to be a people, Lord, who live in the fullness and the freedom of your redeeming work. We thank you that you are a God that delivers. For those that are in here and need a special portion of your hope and deliverance uh, that comes through Jesus Christ alone, would you please meet them freshly? Uh, Lord, we love you and we thank you and pray for your mercy in Jesus' name. All God's people said, amen. amen.